Hey everyone, uh, it's your host, half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer here, um, and I'm coming to you from the sweltering hot northern suburbs of Johannesburg, where <laughs> one else is sweltering hot, but I certainly am in sweltering hot, and I'm joined of course today by uh, my wonderful, glorious colleague uh, and co-host, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. How are you? This how's it? How's it? How's it? Here, here in Yeovil, uh, it's been pretty warm, and I am sort of recovering from a children's party yesterday. Uh, it was happening over the road by the Ghanaian sort of Nigerian Shabin, and it was a, for seven-year-olds, but the DJ was blasting Deep House from about... Uh, <laughs> dude, and when I say blasting, like, I could literally hear it eight blocks away. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it was really, it was really charming, but uh, I've been relishing the silence today uh <laughs> remembering that it exists that it's even possible so if i had been staying where you were there would i would probably be in prison right now because i've, I've got a bit of a headache and uh, if someone had been blasting house from that early i would have killed them um i can i just i just want to say one thing about the party and the music yes. uh which is this weird cultural observation so so from about august um uh, when alcohol was illegal uh, there was an upsurge as things just started getting a little bit warmer, um, or rather when the night stopped being kind of freezing, so, freezing. so it's still cold. Uh, there was an upsurge in, in house parties. And uh, I noticed that uh, people were playing a lot of the Jerusalem song mm. and also a lot of goldfish interlaced with like a lot of uh, Central African deep house and sort of Ghanaian jazzy house, and it was really pleasant to listen to. But ever since Ramaphosa uh, kind of started this Jerusalem song meme, Yovel Yovel has stopped playing it. Like that song has been dropped <laughs> from the playlist, no cool. which is it's kind of sad. But I get it. It's it's a little bit like when you hear your favorite song playing in Woolworths or whatever, you know, in some in some grocery store, and you're like, ah, oh, it can't be that cool. Uh, that that happened to me with Pink Floyd when I was a teenager. Anyway, so <laughs> so <I'm, laughs> anyway, there's a little cultural comment. Uh, well, I finally went out and did something for the first time in months. I went and I saw uh, Tenet by uh, Christopher Nolan, the famous director, and it was completely incomprehensible. But I absolutely loved it. I'm not sure if I could recommend anyone else to watch it, but I had an absolute blast. If you like Christopher Nolan films. And you like weird, timey-wimey stuff, and you don't mind not hearing any dialogue because everyone is wearing a mask. And I mean, not like a surgical mask. I mean, like a oxygen mask or a gas mask, which half the characters in the film are. Um, go watch it; it's a great time. It's 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 definitely creative cinema. I'll give you that. Oh <laughs> yeah, dude! You, I'm hearing that makes me want to go and watch a movie for the first time in as long as I can remember. It's quite interesting. So you, you have to sit far apart from everyone else and there's very limited capacity in the theater and you get your temperature taken as you go into the theater. It's pretty hardcore, um, but uh, it's not so bad. And also that means mm. you're not pressed up against like some weird sweaty people, <laughs> which sometimes like, happens. If you watch a film like film. Nicholas Lorimer. Like me, yes. Um, but uh, Our favorite on... weird sweaty dude. <laughs> yes. Don't choke on chocolate like I did during the filming because that would be... Um, uh, the, the, the showing because everyone looks at you and they think you've got corona. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry, guys. I'm just dying here. I'm just. I, I'm not going to infect you. I'm just. Yeah. I just can't breathe. <laughs> um, right. So I'm going to do the social distance Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> I think that is uh, to just let you die. <laughs> You just give daggers with the eyes into your like esophagus and hope that yes. it dislodges whatever obstacle your <laughs> airways. There is. Um, you wanted to talk about someone who has recently passed away. Uh, tell us. Tell I did about that. Yeah. So so David Graeber uh, passed away. I think it's two weeks ago now, and I uh, wanted to talk about him last week. Didn't get a chance. He is in some ways. The mo one of the most important writers in my life. Um, when I had just uh, graduated from university, 
I had a couple of months where I was sort of a manual laborer, uh, trying to think about what it all means. And the first book that I read was uh, Huckleberry Finn. And that was really great because I'd walk around barefoot sort of in the lake by Lake Carnegie and sit under the trees and with a bit of grass between my teeth, read this sort of wonderful tale of self-discovery uh, where kind of the key thing about Huckleberry Finn is that, uh, you know, sometimes going against uh, what you think is right in the name of your instinct is actually the best thing to do. Like if what you think is right is to be racist, but your best instinct is, you know, you've got a close friend who's a slave and you want to help him out, then it turns out, you know, the heart can can lead the head. Uh, and it's a nice tale of that. Very, uh, uh, very romantic idea. Yeah. So it doesn't always, it almost never works out that way, but it is, I was so cynical at the time. It was very nice to, to dwell on something romantic like that. Uh, and the flip side was David Graeber, who, who was kind of about the head leading the heart. And he, in his book, Debt, 5,000 Years of History, he, 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 he covers a lot of ground. It was written in the wake of the global financial crisis. Graeber, by some accounts, uh, was the progenitor of the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, by some accounts coined the phrase the 1%. Um, and there really was a real reason to be angry with the financial system in America because uh, literally millions of people lost their life savings uh, and bankers who'd been selling uh, uh, bullshit CDOs, uh, knowing that they were bad, uh, basically made money. I mean, they were fined a bit, but the profits they made were much more than the fines and practically no one went to jail. So there was a lot of real reason to be angry and, and, and Graeber was writing into that. Um, but he was so much more interesting in his book than he was on Twitter. And I just that wanted to- true quickly, for so many people. Hey, yeah, it is like that. That is the epitome, the epitome uh, sadly, on, on, on so many tombstones. Um, the epitaph. But, so I just wanted to quickly lay out two ideas uh, that he gave that I think are really worth pondering. And the one is on the origins of philosophy. So I was a philosophy major and I really loved it. And it often seemed to me like philosophy was like lightning. Uh, and, I, you, you know, some divine truth comes down from the skies, strikes one person's brain, he writes them down or says them. And from there, the ball gets rolling uh, for for science, for you know, for 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 getting the, the framework that you need to think empirically, for getting the framework that you need to think democratically, respectfully, uh, and to turn your back on the idea that might is right. And part of the reason that I was starting to worry about this uh, thought that that human monkeys like me had been pottering along. Uh, until the lightning struck Socrates's brain um, was that I noticed this kind of story of Plato to NATO of Western civilization that kind of lumped things together often in a bit of a racialized way uh, you know as if as if the Prometheus came down and gave the technology of fire to a white dude and ever since then you know cooking has been a white thing uh, which is like a stupid idea um, and part of the reason that I was suspicious of it is that I noticed, as, as many have, that Socrates, who's kind of the worst, the, sorry, the first uh, Western philosopher in some ways, uh, and uh, 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 not Buddha, who's the guy who wrote, who, who started Buddhism? It was, uh, it was Buddha, but what's his it was name? Buddha. Um, yeah, it's Siddhartha, it's, it's, uh, I'll just look it up now, hold on. Okay, thanks, Nick. Anyway, him and and Confucius in China, who also started like a great philosophical tradition. Those three great philosophical traditions all started within a couple of generations of each other. Uh, sorry, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. Was his, was his name? He was an in North Indian prince. So, so, so it was really to me that these three great philosophical traditions started almost at the same time. And it did kind of evoke in me this like alien invasion kind of idea, you know, that aliens came down and they visited us and they were like, okay, 
you know, here's this spark of fire for you. Here's a spark of fire for you. Here's a spark of fire for you. Kind of let's start it in three places just in case the winds blow it out in one of them. Uh, and that's and that's obviously also a bit mad to think that we got wisdom from aliens. So Graeber, Graeber gives a much more solid account uh, for why philosophy begins. And he takes the beginning, the original philosophical idea to be that you can that anything can turn into anything else. So this is sort of an important uh, scientific hypothesis, the hypothesis uh, of atoms of the same kinds being uh, arranged into different forms, making up different things. And it turns out to be true uh, at the at the at the sort of particle level. You've got um, electrons, protons and neutrons, and they kind of make up everything in different arrangements. And and in in the more modern sense, uh, uh, the best contemporary theory seems to be that everything is a flux in the G wave, um, including space, time, and gravity itself. So, ancient Greeks thought about you know everything is water, or everything is fire, or everything is a combination of water, fire, earth, and two other elements. And and there's a very yeah. similar thing going on in Buddhism and in and in Confucianism. Uh, they they all really do start with the idea that e everything is somehow just a different version of everything else and and Graeber's thought and it's not his own thought it actually comes from French archaeologists is that that idea uh, comes in all three cases a generation after money cash money becomes a, uh, like a, a social convention that people practice like that once there's cash money in a system people quickly start noticing wow you can turn uh, a house into four cows or you can turn four cows into a wife you can turn one wife into seven mistresses you know you can sell your wife and, and buy cheaper slaves you know you, you can you can kind of turn anything into anything else in a very practical sense uh and 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 the thought is that that once it once it becomes normal for people to think that way uh then then the sort of original scientific position comes into view. And I'm not sure that's right, but I just think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, yeah. The origins of philosophy is that it's born out of cash. Uh, but then the next question is, what is the origins of cash? Why did cash come about at almost the same time in India, China, and uh, the Mediterranean? And, and their history is basically um, that you had cities-states that were uh, were finally developing a kind of imperial conquest model uh, the technologies of violence were getting sophisticated enough for them to to run up against the major logistical problem of of old school conquest where your army just feeds itself by plunder en route to the enemy uh, and the, and the problem there is that even if you win you 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 have a very resentful peasant population between you and the enemy because you've you've raped all their women and you've stolen all their cattle. And so uh, in all three places, we have written records of why people decided to invent cash money. And and they and the arguments were, uh, you know, if we can we they already people already had units of account. Uh, so that wasn't entirely strange. And using rare metals for those units of account wasn't entirely strange and stores of value, which are major properties of cash, but actually imprinting it uh, with a sort of king or, or, or ruler's face or, or some kind of inscription. The idea was we'll use that to pay the army and then we'll insist that people pay us taxes later on in the year in that coin. And that way we've, we incentivize the people from our own city to follow the army along instead of by force, by the profit motive to to sell water and food and prostitutes and uh, weaponry uh, uh, repairs to the army as it goes along to get that coin. And then there'll be a secondary market. People will try to sell, sell things to those sellers. Um, and then secondly, the peasantry will be more inclined to to uh, sell their grain to the army or sell their stock to the army uh, so that they can pay the taxes back to us later on. And in all three places, it really worked. So, uh, so yeah, uh, uh, there's some dispute around this, but I think it's an interesting theory and it matters a lot because if you think of cash 
as not just being a store of value, a unit of account and a means of exchange, but also as something on the cutting edge of, of coordinating violence, coordinating tax system, uh, uh, co coordinating the state in this Hobbesian sense as, as that which uh, in guarantees peace through a monopoly of, of legitimate force. Um, then you start to see why currency competition between countries is such a common pattern across history and why it's really important. Um, and, and, and you can answer one of the more obvious questions, which so many people can't answer, but David Graeber could answer perfectly well in a very, very statistically supported way, which is, uh, he, I mean, he was writing this in 2011, uh, when everyone thought that quantitative easing, uh, ZERP zero interest rate policy was going to stoke, uh, massive inflation in Europe and the U S and he said, it's not going to happen. It's going to carry on. They're going to carry on doing this. Central banks in uh, around the world are going to carry on doing this, and it's not going to stoke hyperinflation. Uh, and and the reason is uh, because fiat currency is actually a measure of how much people value the centralization of violence. Uh, and and he thought that people valued it a lot, particularly valued it in America because it's got such a strong army. Uh, anyway, so that's a very interesting idea. David Graeber was an anarchist. Uh, so he didn't like the centralization of, of violence. Uh, he didn't like the state. Um, and he was, uh, uh, he, towards the end of his life, he wrote a much more successful book called Bullshit Jobs, uh, basically arguing that everyone's jobs are crap and that we could all survive working kind of seven months in the year instead of working throughout the year. Um, <laughs> and he, was very, he became very anti-work, very anti-value add. And I think that was uh, very sad uh, for me to read, particularly sad for me to read how 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 important that work was considered by by almost you know by all of his readers. That that got reviews everywhere and got repeatedly memed. Whereas his history of debt, his history of the origins of philosophy and the origins of money, uh, even amongst Graeber fans and in his obituaries, is just just hardly goes it goes unmentioned, goes un 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 assimilated, uncontemplated, and and I think that's a that's a that's an indictment of of us, mm. uh, of the journalistic class, and so on. Sorry, that was a long spiel about Graeber, but he really changed my life. I, when I read that, I was like, okay, let's be, let, I, I want to be a human being. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed Not to a doormaster, I suppose. <laughs> well, as opposed to like some uh, some floating clouds idea of a philosopher waiting for lightning to strike. No, this is a good thing. You did a good service for the world then, in that case. Um, someone else, of course, who died, who I'm sure if you follow any international news you've probably heard about, is the famous American Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at the age of 87 after um, a long uh, illness of, uh, I think she had pancreatic cancer. Um, she'd been dealing with it for a very long time, uh, but it got to a very serious stage quite quickly and she'd been ailing for most of the year. Um, and that has left, uh, she was, well, let me let me finish up on her. She was, of course, a, uh, a very respected justice. Um, she uh, had a very good reputation. She was famously good friends with her very conservative counterpart, Antonin Scalia. Um, she was also uh, famous for, interestingly, she wrote a, an opinion about how the court decision Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion in all American states, was actually not good for the abortion movement. Um, that was one of the sort of things that people often don't expect from her that she did right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but she so was generally known as a as a sort of feminist icon and fighter for uh, the equalization of women's rights uh, and a yeah. hero of the left in American politics. I can't re recommend reading that enough. Her 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 analysis of Roe v. Wade is especially for 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 people who think of themselves. Uh, on the center or on the left, uh, people who, who who really see abortion as being a very difficult but important choice that often needs to be allowed to be made. Uh, it's it's just such an important thing to to grapple with. Mm. 
Indeed. And um, it is, of course, now that she's passed away, it came as, as far as I'm concerned, at one of the worst possible times. Um, yeah. I think that she probably should have resigned a while ago. Uh, she was very ill. Um, I think she was hoping to make it through to a Joe Biden, Joe Biden presidency. I mean, in fact, her dying wish was essentially that she shouldn't be replaced until uh, there's a new president. Um, I, I, she probably should have retired a while ago because now that this is so close to the election, it is going to be a very, very ugly political fight. We saw when uh, Justice Kavanaugh and to a certain extent when Justice Gorsuch were confirmed by the Republicans um, in the past couple of years during the Trump presidency that the fights were very ugly. Um, and I think it's going to get really bad uh, now, I, especially because there's a there's a sense of injustice by a lot of people on the left in American politics who feel like the election should be held first and then whoever wins should get to a point of justice. Um, what yeah, are I've, got to, I've got to say, I disagree. Um, I think that I can't even remember his name, but uh, in Obama's last little while as president, he tried to pass through a Supreme Court Merrick justice. Merrick Garland. Was, that was his name. I still, you said it and then I immediately forgot it again. Uh, <laughs> This is this is a this is a an internet meme joke, um, just uh, FYI. But yeah, no. I, so he, the Democrats are never going to pass. There's no way Trump is 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 getting another Supreme Court justice before the election. There's just no ways. Uh, they don't have the seats. They don't have the numbers in the House uh, to do so. Uh, for well, confirmation, I mean, you just need a majority since the filibuster was uh, nuked. But they don't have a majority. Well, the Republicans do. Only in the Senate. Yeah, but they only need one in the Senate. It's the Senate entirely that 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 confirms uh, justices. Does the House no, the of House Representatives? Ooh, you see, I'm learning online you here. You see, you see the problem. <laughs> so they could, so they could get a third SCOTUS. Yeah. Now it used to take sixty votes in the Senate. Uh, to pass any judge into the into the uh, uh, what's it called the the, the, the judiciary at all, all levels, and then in 2013 um, the the Democrats under Obama the Democrats still controlled the uh, the, the Senate. They said, oh, this the Republicans are obstructing too much. We're going to get rid of the filibuster for all federal judges except the Supreme Court judges." And the Republican minority leader uh, Mitch McConnell at the time he said, "You are going to regret this." And of course, when it came time to vote through a Supreme Court justice, uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch, who were, did not have 60 votes because he didn't get any Democrat support, Mitch McConnell got rid of the filibuster for that. So now you only need a simple majority. So both sides are doing their best to destroy old norms and rules. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and, so they uh, probably will yeah, get a third votes. Supreme Court justice. Well, here's the thing, right? Because then minority is what? How many How many seats is it? I don't know. They were, what, 54 seats or something? Uh, let me look it up now. Um, think, yeah, it's like 54, 50, 46 or 52, 48. Something like that. Uh, if enough Republican senators defect and say that they want to wait till after the election, um, then it might be... Yeah, so it's currently it's 53 Republicans to 45 Democrats and two independents, but the independents are basically Democrats. So if the Republicans have four defections, uh, then, then they don't get it. Yeah, but I think that's a bit of a stretch. I know Susan Collins is one of the Republican senators says she's going to wait. Um, who else? I'm not sure. Lindsey Graham originally said it, but he says after the uh, Kavanaugh thing, he the rules are changed and he's definitely going to put through the person, so I'm not sure anymore to be honest Yeah, the Kavanaugh thing was really yeah, the Democrats really did not behave they were not on their best behavior during the Kavanaugh thing, No, and I think that uh, irked a lot of people and also, and part gonna... of the problem there just to say, a, a very common conservative American talking point is that uh, they're actually very angry with, with Brett Kavanaugh because he hasn't sort of followed up on on the agenda that they'd hoped for. Uh, he hasn't taken Ruth. You know, one of the big issues was, uh, bizarrely enough, that he had said that he kind of thinks Ruth Bader Ginsburg had it right uh, on Roe versus yeah. Wade. 
and uh, and abortion issues were taken before the Supreme Court. And remember that the thought is not that abortion should become illegal. Uh, it's it's rather that um, this should be deferred to the states. Uh, yes. so more of the details should be deferred to the states. What you would probably see is if Roe v. Wade was taken away is most states would legalize abortion. Uh, a lot would restrict it a little bit more than it is currently. And a couple, like maybe five or six, would ban it outright. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, that is, uh, that's, that's not been how he's voted on the bench. And so people feel that the, the Democrat agenda was not to block his confirmation through false allegations of, of sexual harassment when he was a teenager, teenage choir boy actual choir boy who who kept a, a ridiculously detailed diary of his entire life uh, with one witness who was contradicted by the only other witnesses that she said were there that she could name uh, uh, but but rather to humiliate him enough that he would basically vote their way ever after for fear of going through the kind of stress that he went through before and not just him personally also his family and his friends. So I think that there is a yearning to to get. I think a lot of conservatives feel like Kavanaugh. I mean, he was actually the most centrist uh, Republican yeah, appointment. They, he and he also replaced the most centrist uh, Republican yes. appointment, uh, who was uh, Justice Kennedy. Yeah. So so I think they want they want like a red blooded Scalia uh, up there. And uh, so, yeah, there'll be oof, well, the, the very so and very unfortunate a, that there's so much acrimony because, yeah, as you yeah, said, it's, get it it's going to it's going to be ugly. Yeah, um, Trump has said that he is going to appoint a woman, um, and so if he was going to pick someone very conservative, he might pick. I think her name is all Amy Barrett, who is right. a federal judge who has like nine children and is a hardline Catholic, uh, which would i think i think trump there's a chance trump might pick her because let's just say she might own the libs in many interesting ways <laughs> um, this is this is not going to be pretty no it's going to be gross and so i'm sure we will talk about it on future episodes but we we need to see what happens as so, so it's not clear how it's going to actually affect the election um yeah. so right let's move to our next topic uh, and I think we wanted to talk about, and this is an idea that you've you've concocted mostly, Gabriel, um, but I think it's a pretty interesting one. And that's basically, so there's a couple of countries around the world which kind of have acted like destabilizing cancerous tumors in their neighborhoods. Um, one of them is is uh, Tehran, uh, which, which is the capital city of Iran, um, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which has a militant revolutionary ideology and is basically a kind of revolutionary dictatorship who wants to spread a very particular form of Shia Islam across first the Middle East and then the world. Um, they also see themselves as kind of heirs of a Persian heritage that goes back thousands of years. And so Iran has been very involved in the internal politics of a lot of their neighbors. Um, they've sponsored a lot of groups, terrorist groups and revolutionary groups across the Middle East. Um, they basically saved Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, from uh, from from losing his his his, his throne um, in the Syrian civil war. They are currently supporting the Houthi rebels in um, Yemen, uh, and they supported a revolution against the king of Bahrain in the Arab Spring. Um, they, I think, at times they've supported groups in the in Afghanistan as well, which is on their eastern border. Um, and they also support, I think, Hamas um, in, in and Hezbollah in Lebanon and Israel. Uh, so they're they've pretty. Kind of fought, they've kind of yeah. fought with ISIS. Yeah, they fought. They fought with ISIS. Um, they've also aided Al Qaeda. Who you know, they're not the same as ISIS, but they, you know, they have the same ideological group. So they've they they pragmatically played a lot of sides in order to achieve their goal, which is um, basically. Iranian domination of the Middle East in the in the medium term and Iranian global uh, reach uh, in the in the in the longer term I think uh, they've also pursued the development of a nuclear weapon um, which yeah. 
which the Israelis and and or the Americans and or the Saudis keep sabotaging in some very interesting ways. But we can talk about that in another episode. So your thought, Gabriel, was that South Africa kind of sits as the like center of Southern Africa, right? It's yeah. like the sort of cultural economic hub. I mean, if you go to Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, uh, Mozambique, often you can pay with rands. Uh, a lot of the shops are the same uh, and you can really feel the South African influence. Yeah, And that really, if South Africa goes a bit more down the tubes and we go a little bit more towards the sort of EFF direction, we might become horribly infected um, with an expansionist nasty ideology like Iran and we could become, in a sense, the Iran of Southern Africa, which Correct. is an interesting thought. Yeah. So just explain so, a little bit more about how this happens. Yeah, well, so let me just explain quickly how I got the idea. Um, and I, I've, I've sort of been running with this idea all year in, in briefings uh, and last year um, uh, uh, with clients. Um, but I, I, I forgot where I got it until um, Tamara Drummett, one of our colleagues, uh, uh, sent me an email from The Economist who had just republished the first, uh, you know, one of the things about The Economist is that they is that they don't name their authors. Everything's just under the name of The Economist. Um, but Every now and then they they depart from that, and uh, they departed from that with a cover story uh, for the first time in years. Uh, I think at the end of last year or the beginning of this year, uh, based in Iran, what had happened was one of their correspondents was uh, writing about Iran. Uh, he was a Jewish guy who'd been to Israel, and uh, the Iranians figured that out, and so they detained him on the way to the airport uh, for, they said, just a... You know, there were four hours till his flight. So they said, you know, we're just going to ask you questions for an hour and then we'll put you back on the plane. And uh, it was several weeks uh, that he was uh, sort of basically jailed by the Iranians. Um, and uh, I mean, the piece itself is really interesting to read from from a journalist's point of view. I think he does a good job of saying, you know, a lot of people want to call me some kind of prisoner of war and and dramatize everything that happened. In fact, for the most part, it was very polite and civil and they and they did their best to treat me well, uh, unlike so many others. Um, but I think what's what's even more interesting about it is is the picture that he paints of Iran towards the end of his arrest. They basically first he's in isolation, then they, then he's in a in a prison, in a sort of torturous prison environment where he knows other people who'd been tortured. Then he gets put in a cheap hotel, and then he gets put in quite a fancy hotel. And they say you can walk around town, uh, but we'll have an escort to make sure that you're not uh, sending nefarious messages. And in that time, he, as he chronicles that time, he sort of describes an Iran that I think is very different to how people imagine iran from south africa so yeah so my, we probably imagine it quite as a backwards place right like everyone in sort of uh, you know everyone goes to mosque and then they go home and everyone does anything else yeah it's it's the desert uh there's very little infrastructure architecture everyone goes to mosque and then they go home the women are all in hijabs uh that is that's just not what Toronto looks like uh, Tehran, you know, he's he's going to art museums, he's going to ornate very old libraries, he's going to theatrical spectacles that are, are you know, highly critical of uh, imperialism, of race-based nationalism, of uh, uh, religious uh, fundamentalism. Uh, a lot of women uh, sort of either wear their scarves very loosely, a little bit like masks in South Africa. You know, it's like kind of there is a law, like you have to wear your mask when you're outside, but like a lot of people are just, are actually just wearing no mask at all, or they sort of just have it draped around their ear. And once they're inside in the restaurant, they kind of, a lot of ladies sort of uh, lusciously let it drape across their, their, their chest, which is fairly exposed, and you can see neck and a bit of bosom. And and, uh, and people are wearing, uh, you know, expensive jewelry. And it's just like, you know, a lot of Tehran is like Santon. Uh, yeah, and, well, at least and some and, parts of Tehran are like Santon. Well, just like some parts of Joburg are like yeah. Santon. <laughs> the Santon parts of Tehran are like Santon. <laughs> yes, and the rest are very much not like Santon. But there is, and and so it's important to just it's it's important to bear in mind that that Iran was in in 1980, for example. I mean, Iran was the economic powerhouse of the Middle East in 1980, uh, although it had a similar sized 
population to South Africa, its GDP was pretty much double ours. Uh, and 1980 was uh, sort of, relatively speaking, a high point in just pure GDP per capita terms in South Africa, uh, not as high as 2007. But uh, from 1980 to 1992, GDP slips a lot. Uh, they also have terrible slippage there uh, because of a uh, clampdown. But in, 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 in our lifetimes, in the lifetimes of all human beings that are actually alive, Iran has been uh, financially the most sophisticated part of the Middle East and uh, economically uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's culturally. Been a, it's, also be, it's also been a cultural powerhouse for like, what, 2,000 years, more than yeah. 2,500 years. So Iran is actually one of the centers of the great civilizations of the world. It's had huge influence over not only the Middle East, but also India itself, who until the British basically came, um, the elite of India wrote a Persian script. Uh, they used Persian letters and stuff for their for their uh, writing. So yeah. Iran is Iran is actually a much more important country than a lot of people give it credit for. And if you've, I mean, if you've watched a, a movie made in the Middle East, like the chances are it was in it was made in Iran. Uh, the all of all of the foreign language movies that have won Oscars that I can think of in the last decade or two uh, have have come out of Iran. Uh, one of, you know, there's weird things about Iran, like if, if you're at a, if you're ordering a coffee and the waiter comes and drops it down there on your table, you're, you're likely to say merci, uh, cause they, they've kind of taken in some French, um, into their vernac, which is, feels like such a South African thing. Like, um, right. we have, even while people are speaking Zulu or Tsotsital, you know, there's like a lot of, uh, linguistic devices from Afrikaans or English uh, that have been appropriated for so long that they feel like they're Zulu words. Um, so, okay, so so that's one important way to think about Iran as, be, uh, as being similar to South Africa, is that it was economically the most powerful, and then it fell into some very bad traps, and uh, as a result became uh, poorer, and that creates a feedback loop. The worse you perform, the more angry people become. And if that anger doesn't generate intelligent debate, if it's kind of repressed and redirected, then you end up having more extreme ideological forms of leadership, which in turn makes people poorer, which in turn makes them more angry, until you get to the point where uh, where everyone but the real elite uh, goes from being in a position where they could reasonably expect to get their gallbladder removed, um, in a in and it's in a safe and cheap procedure yeah. in a hospital uh, uh, to the point where you can expect uh, to die, uh, which is not good. So, so uh, another important analog between Iran and South Africa is, uh, is 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 a racial one. So, as you said, like Iran is is mostly mostly populated by Persians who are racially yeah, distinct from Arabs. I'm looking at the at the the graph now. It's sixty one percent Persian, sixteen percent Azeri, which are like Azerbaijanis, ten percent Kurdish, six percent Luri, and then two percent Arab, and then there's a whole bunch of other small minorities as well. Um, so it's it's actually got a pretty diverse population. Um, and while it is religiously thought to be pretty homogenous, uh, those stats are very heavily questioned because it's in the government's interest to fudge them. Yeah. But they are they are predominantly Persian, and uh, th there is a two thousand year old history of Persians considering themselves superior to Arabs, in just the way yes. that uh, white people thought that they were superior to black people, in just the way uh, for for a while that that Zulus considered themselves superior to Sutus, um, and uh, and Mzilikazi's well, I don't know, Shona's consider themselves superior to Ndebeles. No, other way around, Shona and Ndebeles. Um, and that is also very important from a religious point of view. If you look at the difference between Shia, Shiite uh, Islam and Sunni Islam, uh, the, the sort of schism comes around who was the proper inheritor of the Prophet Muhammad's role as leader of the Islamic world. And, and the, 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 the Sunnis... Term, the Islamic term for it is Caliph, which literally just means successor of Muhammad. Yeah. And so the Twelfthy Shiites, they think that it's got to be in the bloodline. It's got to be in the family. So they start with his cousin and then they go down the line and so on. 
Um, whereas the Sunnis think anyone who's sufficiently pious can play the role. So there's this very, very old kind of uh, separate emphasis on, on, on how important blood or genetics or, or race as a, as a generic analog is, with Shiites being much more on the ra racialist side. I'm not saying all Shiites are racialist. Uh, you don't have to interpret it that way. But, but there, just, yeah, there is a strand of that thought in their ideology. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, just to check, okay, what's, what's the litmus test for like how racialist you are? Well, uh, which side of World War II were you on? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ir Iran good, was fighting with the Nazis. They were not fighting against the Nazis. Yeah, they got, uh, they got invaded and, and, and smashed by the Soviets and the British pretty early on, uh, as soon as they basically got on the Nazi-ish side, um, along with Iraq as well, uh, also sided with the Nazis. So, so these guys were like, they were badly on the wrong side of history there. And then the great irony is that's part of the reason that they continued to develop uh, pretty sophisticated financial ways, but also to continue to develop a uh, really bad antagonism towards crony capitalism, because uh, it was crony capitalism. After the Brits, uh, after World War II, uh, the Brits are kind of running Iran, they kind of get deposed and then get back in there. You know, they keep putting yeah, their favorite people in charge mostly, so that they can they're kind of run at a distance run the oil right? company. They, yeah, they, they run the oil company and they let the Iranians do most of the government, although they interfere if it's turning against them. If anyone's turning against the oil company, then they're like, well, now, hold on. We, <laughs> yes. we, we must civilize you. So, so the Brits did not do a good job of managing that. Uh, the revolutionaries took advantage of their failings and uh and so you yeah, and, well, and and that's the recipe for disaster that i'm kind of trying to lay out is exactly. is a lot of a lot of wealth a great cultural tradition a lot of prestige a lot of uh, prestige is important at a national point of view because that is the precondition for exporting your ideas for injecting your ideological preferences into yeah, your neighbor's Public if you think your country is the supreme best and is the inheritor of a great heritage and actually everyone around you is a loser, um, you are far more likely to start invading your neighbors and toppling their governments and mucking with them in interesting ways. And funny we should say that because, of course, what is a thing that many people across Africa seem to say about uh, uh, South Africans, in my experience, is that they're supremely arrogant. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that, that the Zimbabwean, uh, sorry, the, the Zambian deputy president at one stage said that South Africans are the most arrogant people in the world. Yeah, and 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 I, and it's not hard to see why. We think we're exceptional. Uh, we fail to look at the, uh, we we fail to draw good lessons from the decolonization movements around us, uh, and so repeat mistakes that have already been made, which Africa's elites totally see. And uh, and they, and they <laughs> think that only only our blind arrogance can can possibly sustain this uh, stupid trajectory. Uh, at the same time, we presume to for 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 African race nationalists, uh, they irritated with South Africa because we presume to speak on behalf of the continent. Uh, we are the ones to get uh, a, a temporary seat in the Security Council. Um, we uh, consider ourselves to be Africa's ambassador to the world. We market ourselves as the gateway to Africa. Uh, this is all very irritating. And of course, we export uh, companies, many companies, but uh, you know, one worth mentioning is MTN, uh, which famously got uh, knocked back by Nigeria, uh, but less famously, equally importantly, uh, has the largest stake in uh, Iran's uh, largest telecommunications network. So yeah. there's a little interesting uh, financial connection. Uh, South Africa also <laughs> votes with Iran often in the UN. Um, and uh, I think we were some of the last places to comply with the sanctions against Iran that were being imposed by the US and the European Union. Yeah. So, so on top of that, we have been passive. We, we haven't been uh, the cancerous organ that kind of sends money beyond our borders to fund terrorist organizations. But we have been a little bit like the failing liver that uh, doesn't sort of uh, rinse the toxins that come into us. So when Zimbabwe went race nationalist and grabbed land and socialist uh, in 2000, we, no, we, we supported it. about that. Yeah, we, bas we basically tacitly supported it. 
Uh, then the EFF was born on the thought that Zimbabwe, that Mugabe was a hero uh, and that Zimbabwe is actually much better off than it had been in the 90s uh, because of expropriation without compensation. And, uh, then Ramaphosa the, made that a, an agenda in parliament. Yeah, and the, the explicit program of the EFF is essentially to uh, follow the policies of Robert Mugabe almost to the letter. Yeah, so we have we we kind of vindicate or validate um, the worst elements of Zimbabwean politics. Uh, more recently, we sent an envoy of ANC cadres to uh, speak to Zona PF cadres uh, and not make contact yes. with uh, with the opposition. with opposition leaders. So so it's wrong on both sides. We should have sent uh, government officials, you know, some something either nominally or actually bipartisan or cross-partisan. Uh, from our side to speak to bipartisan guys on their side, but instead we, you know, it was one party to another. So that's not great. Uh, when Omar al-Bashir, uh, Sudanese uh, 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 mass slaughterer, yeah, yeah, came for a visit. Responsible for, for genocide in, I think, both South Sudan and Darfur. So not yeah. a nice guy. Yeah, we, we shielded him. We deliberately shielded him from arrest. Um... We, yeah, we won't so let the Dalai Lama in, but we'll let him in. So we're already passively complicit. Yeah, we're already uh, acting a little bit like a proto-rogue state, like Iran. But give us, give us, as you say, send us down the tubes a little bit further, and and it will be to our benefit. And and I suppose the really important touchstone here is what's going on in Mozambique. Yeah. Uh, so Mozambique in the north of the country has this uh, Islamist insurgency, which I think is affiliated with ISIS. Um, and uh, it's, you know, so often these insurgencies, they pop up around areas where there are natural resources that are easily exploitable. In this case, it's uh, gas fields in northern Mozambique. They and also rubies. usually pop up. Yeah. And 40 percent of the world's unmined rubies. They also often... Because you can find an insurgency by selling that under the table. It's pretty pretty easy to sell, and there's lots of people who are willing to buy it. Um, so often what the sort of uh, Islamist groups do is they, they look for some disenfranchised, uh, grumpy group of Muslims somewhere in the world. Um, and this is they've been pretty successful in Mali and Somalia by doing this. They arrive with guns, training, and ideology, and they say, hey, guys, you know, if you subscribe to our ideology, we will support you in your fight against the local government, which in the, this case, is the Mozambican government is, I, <laughs> I think it's pretty fair to say, corrupt, incompetent and cruel. Um, yeah. And almost certainly discriminatory, right? Because uh, Mozambique is about, what, 20% Muslim um, and most of the Muslims are concentrated in the north. There's been an Islamic community there for like hundreds of years because of the Swahili trading cities on the coasts. Um and so that they they are a marginalized group within Mozambique. Uh, they are geographically focused, and they're sitting right on top of a whole bunch of resources. So Mozambique is currently fighting against a a, a insurgency, um, and from the sight the sound of it, it's not going so well. Um, in part because, uh, and there's been some videos on social media about this. The Mozambican army appears to be treating the local people in the north appallingly, absolutely appallingly sort of random punishing of civilians who they think might be associated with the rebels, uh, torturing people, shooting people, journalists have been arrested and tortured. Um, it's really grim. And so there's a, the Mozambican government had to resort to hiring mercenaries. I think first they hired some Russians, but that didn't work out. So then they hired some South Africans and uh, they've lost one of the small port towns in the north now to the insurgents. They've been unable to push them out. Um, so yeah, and, one, and just coming, just to clarify on that small port, uh, that was there's a gas field right by that port, and that port, right. you know the whole the whole point of it was to generate the gas, take it to sea there. Uh, so it's strategically very important for that and for the rubies, which are easier to transport and elsewhere. Exactly, and you can see Mozambique going a little bit the way of Iraq, right? If Iran, if South Africa is like an Iran. Uh, then Mozambique is a little bit like our Iraq, right? It's divided between uh, uh, religious and ethnic groups. Uh, it's got a very weak central authority. It's got a lot of fossil fuel resources that can easily be exploited. And its government is losing legitimacy because it can't deal with internal problems and it keeps discriminating against itself. This is exactly what happened in uh, Iraq that allowed the rise of ISIS. And the rise of ISIS helped to 
uh, allow Iran to take control over southern Iraq, for at least for a time, although it's been rolled back a bit since then. So there's a lot of uncomfortable parallels here, um, from where I'm yeah. sitting at least. So uh, and, and then and Zimbabwe likewise. So notice the following. So the Mail and Guardian's uh, most recent piece on this dilemma, on this on, on this uh, situation in Mozambique, on the civil war, where a few thousand have died in the last few years, uh, and which is now really heating up, is to say, you know, there have been a lot of calls for South Africa to to send in a bit of the army to to recapture the strategic port town and restore it to the Mozambican government, uh, and that seems like a good idea because. Uh, the revolutionaries, the, the 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 Islamic fundamentalist revolutionaries are a lot like ISIS, and they are. I mean, if you see the footage of of what they've done to people, hacking hacking yeah, apart they cut dead bodies, heads and things, it's gruesome. Gruesome. Yeah, and this is today. This is not medieval times. This is today. So it's a humanitarian crisis. Uh, it's 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 certainly uh, resulting in the cessation of all value add business. Uh, or not all, but but so much of it, that it's going to make poor people even poorer, and uh, and so we should intervene to stop that. So the Mail and Guardian counters by 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 drawing attention to how badly corrupt the Mozambican government is, and basically sort of taking the socialist line that uh, if we were to invade, this would be sort of capitalist imperialism, uh, and and the grievances are legitimate, and so you oughtn't to do it. Both sides are evil, and you should let them kind of just slaughter each other. Now, they kind of, here's where they have a point. South Africa has so totally failed to criticize Mozambique's regime that, yes. and is so totally similar to, to the ANC's regime is so, so totally similar to the Mozambican regime with these fantastic ironies <laughs> uh, of revolutionary socialists gaining power and then stealing from the poor in just the way they accused the former uh, regime of doing. That... Uh, if we were to to get in there, it would validate uh, ANC kleptocracy and it would validate uh, Mozambican authoritarian kleptocracy too. So, the you know the solution to the problem in a sense is to get into a time machine, go back fifteen years, and have the ANC yes. <laughs> on a fairly regular basis sort of point out, or have the national government on a fairly regular basis point out and criticise. Uh, the Mo Mozambican regime for doing what it's doing, which would have the finger point back. You guys are doing the same as us. You're just a bunch of hypocrites, which would be just another point of pressure for genuine reform right. in South Africa. And if we were setting a good example, uh, it would be easier for us to use soft power, the power of our prestige, the, the power of our, our cultural influence to, to, and our to, economy. to pressure Mozambique into genuine reform as well. Yeah, right. exactly. Exporting good stuff, trade, trade networks are a really fantastic way to to do this. And kind of course, of we send a lot of uh, tourists in, in a, to to Mozambique as well. And in a very practical way, just by the way, you know, if you've got a South African company that's invested in Mozambique, um, and they get expropriated without compensation, or they get jilted in some illegal way, and uh, you 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 can then take them to court in South Africa and and make it right. So famously. Uh, one of the ways that you can tell that the grievances are legitimate in Mozambique is that uh, big, the, uh, the, you know, they had this sort of billion rand, multi-billion rand, multi-billion dollar secret debt deal where basically, uh, uh, you know, foreigners loaned Mozambican government officials a lot of money uh, in secret so that people wouldn't know that it was actually going to lie in the pockets of government officials rather than uh, genuine value-add enterprises. And some of that money was then used to exploit the gas resources uh and the biggest project is sort of half owned by mozambique's deputy president whatever you call him uh whatever yes, you call uh, the position and and he then used the government's uh legitimate monopoly on force uh to remove all the people who are living on top of that gas without any compensation uh so how did they get redress well they sued him in london uh, <laughs> And they not, not and then ideal. they won. They prefer to sue them at home. <laughs> but this is but this is the reason they could do that was because Brits were uh, the British investment was involved in that in that project. Yes. Uh, so so South Africa, you know, Pretoria is much closer than London. We could have had much more of that kind of legal action, and they did win. 
the, those common folk did win and they did get some compensation. And that kind of sends a message to the government that you shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. So we really could have been making a, a practical difference. It's not just the soft mm-hmm. power of prestige. It's also a very practical difference if we had been setting a better example ourselves. But we didn't. So in this way, we have enabled um, uh, the, the, the worst forces of oppression in Mozambique up to date. And then when they got even worse, we are, so, we are basically incapable of stopping it, both because of the sort of political implications and also because it's not clear to me that our army has the capacity to yeah, take a, a small port. Um, this, of course, this, of course, though, although what's interesting about the Iranian army is it's not that strong either, but what they do is they have a very um, developed network of militias who they basically arm and then they kind of act as sort of free, free-range agents uh, under loose Iranian control, and that's actually how they control their neighbors. And so when you have a weak army like South Africa, the temptation, if you wanted to, to start um, mucking with your neighbors, is to... Uh, to do something like that. And that idea... Now, that, yeah, go sorry, ahead. go Riddle me this, Nicholas. Is the EFF auditioning to be South Africa's revolutionary guard? In other words, to pick up the mantle that the Mkonto where veterans have, have let fall, uh, of filling in that vacuum of violence by having their commander-in-chief self, self-described, order attacks... That result in petrol bombings of pharmacies. Uh, that <laughs> you know, it's uh, funny you say that, because uh, of course he's done exactly just that with clicks. I think in the past they've also called for regime change in Botswana. Um, yeah. I think that some of the people on the left of the, uh, the the South African political sphere have called for the invasion and deposition of Swaziland and Lesotho's governments. Yep. Um, and Malema has now also praised. A ANC councillor for violently assaulting with a glass jug a DA councillor in the Port Elizabeth uh, in the Nelson Mandela Bay municipal um, to council chambers. So the EFF now, uh, has no ideological qualms with a bit of regional imperialism, just like yeah. Iran. They want no, they want no borders in Africa. They want they want Pretoria to rule all of Africa. And add to this the fact that the EFF stronghold in some of its stronghold is in the northwest. Right, because it picked up. Yeah, uh, it was born after Marikana, and the platinum belt in South Africa is. This is, you know, we've we've got two big issues. The future issue is the sort of discovery of potentially a billion dollar, a billion barrels of oil uh, off the coast of the Eastern Cape, which is yeah. sort of an an ANC and, stronghold and in some sense as well. And but but the but the existing exploited uh, resources, where, of which there still remain many is in the platinum belt region and that is the EFF stronghold and uh, and and part of the reason I say that is I remember reading in a New York Times article uh, just after the fall of ISIS the nominal fall of ISIS in in Syria they said ISIS at its largest extent was only as big as the northwest province in South Africa and I think that they were <laughs> uh, you know there's a chance that it was just a coincidence they just googled like the surface area to see what would come up um, but also it, it sort of highlights the thought that Weaken Pretoria sufficiently that uh, a Western Cape secession movement, you know, the ANC manages to be even less popular, so unpopular that without rigging the vote, it can't win. You, 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 you find in 10 years time, and we continue on the economic trajectory that we've been on since 2013, uh, you'll find people are very unhappy. Uh, and we, and we've you'll become have a like a, movement. We've become, we become a, 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 bit a, of, res, a resource ex, extraction kleptocracy, which is essentially what Iran is in a lot of ways, right? Um, that's built over the shell, the, the tattered remains of a once proper economy. All you need is for the EFF to, you need some mine that has sort of five years worth of resources to exploit left. At which point they're starting to worry about the huge costs that you have to pay after you finish using up a mine in South Africa, you have to pay huge costs to restore the land uh, for environmental purposes. And uh, so you're no longer that sure that you want to mine it uh, and you've got strikes coordinated by uh, violent unions and EFF guys. You've got another Marikana type situation and that used as a precondition basically for an EFF elite to take one of those mines. And then they've got a cash cow 
which they can use to arm the commander in chief's forces. Once you have that, right. they are the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. The difference, the EFF is very play play right now because you've got people with red berets uh, talking as if they're Che Guevara, but they're not yeah. armed as if they're Che Guevara. Twelve uh, of them so showing up and harassing old ladies at a clicks. It's not quite yeah. the same as a military force yet. The difference between the difference between the EFF and and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, in my opinion, is 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 you just need the country to get poorer for a little bit longer, and you need them to be armed. And if you do those two things, and I think uh, I think that uh, Pretoria looks to be doing both, um, then I think that you th then then you really are looking at a situation in which people in Santon think of themselves as belonging to this like wonderful country that's like you know why don't people get it? Why do people think that uh, South Africa is just like a total asshole? Uh, we're we're having a great life. We actually make movies and we've got wonderful art scene and like yeah. no one but the <laughs> Culture vultures really get it. Like most most foreigners just think South Africa is like a place that exports terror under some race-based theocratic uh, ideology, socialist ideology. Mm. Uh, well, here's why. Because you didn't complain when there was still time to complain. Yeah. No, no I think it's a reasonable thesis. I think definitely. Um, uh, we, we are coming up on an hour now, so we need to start wrapping up. But uh, I, I also think that Pretoria might encourage this. Um, as some proponents of, of Cape Secession have pointed out that regardless of what the ANC wants to do, it won't be able to stop the Western Cape seceding if there's a genuine movement behind it, uh, because the SANDF is too weak and the police are too weak. And like up to a point, that's probably true, but the, the ANC would just do what Iran does and they'd hand out guns to Western Cape gangsters and they'd hand out guns to some sort of EFF group and they'd say, uh, guys, go cause trouble. Make sure they don't break away. Yeah, Defeat and, the racists. And by the way, the, the police in Pretoria, in literally Pretoria, have already sold thousands of guns to Western Cape gangsters. Yes. <laughs> so the contacts are there. It's not like they would have to go out and forge them. It has uh, already been done. And Operation MP, and Operation MP, which was to investigate that, was quashed. One dude was sent to jail, but everyone yeah. else involved in that operation, uh, uh, both on the investigating side and on the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the the issue has not been stopped. Right, um, and and I think Zuma also met with those gangsters as well at some point during his tenure. So <laughs> there's. There's a lot of nasty connections there. We could, I think, I think your thesis is reasonable. You know, we could become the sort of uh, revolutionary socialist uh, terror exporter of Southern Africa. Um, anyway, let's uh, wrap up for a bit now. Uh, Gabriel, do you have any recommendations? Yeah. So uh, if, if we've been bleaking you out, then I do think that you need to seriously consider uh, reading one piece, an opinion piece in the business uh, day business live it's online uh, it was published yesterday uh, by Rufilwe Ncheko uh, uh, who is the deputy federal chairperson of the democratic alliance yes. uh, the piece is titled I am a black DA leader do not whitewash me my ability or my ideas and uh, she says the media and analysts portray uh, black liberal DA members as puppets of the whites, but breaking news, the DA is the only party that doesn't ask me what I am, but ask me what I think. And uh, this, together with uh, 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 another piece recently posted uh, on the Daily Maverick um, by DA Western Cape leader, um, just trying to remember his name. Uh, Bongi uh, is it? No, 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 not Bongi no, no, Ivan... Um I know, I know that, yeah, sorry, I'm getting confused. I know who you're talking about. He's, he's, he's there. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you now, but his, he's, he, he's, he's got a great line. Uh, uh, yeah, it is Bongi Kosi Madikizela. You're right. Mm. Uh, so he's got this great line where he says, uh, people who tell you that the DA are racist are spreading a Vitgefar message. <laughs> and this is what keeps the ANC in power. Don't fall for it. And uh, yeah, so... This is, you know, the Vitgefar. This is, this is uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard was born on the kind of Christian Khafar message, like if, or the Jewish Khafar, like if we don't band together Arabs, 
dirty Arabs will take over and we Persians are superior or dirty Christians and Jews will take over and we Shiite Muslims are superior. That's how they right. managed to get. People didn't quash that idea, and that's how it managed to get to where it is today. Uh, obviously, the apartheid government uh, was spreading the Roy and the Swartgefahr message to keep its awful regime in power. And today, we've got the Witgefahr message, uh, which is uh, yeah, got these imperialist overtones. So people are seeing through this, and I think it's very important what's happening in the DA right now. I don't know if it'll last, but uh, while it's happening, pay attention. Yeah, good. Uh, I recommend good. you read read that piece. Uh, by uh, Rafil Wencheke. I'm a black leader. Do not whitewash me. Uh, I would like to recommend if you're interested in maybe how the US Senate hearings got so toxic. Um, this is from, it dates back to the Kavanaugh hearings in the United States. Uh, but the senator for Nebraska, Ben Sass, gave a rant basically at the Kavanaugh hearings about how Congress had given up all of its power and had toxified the American political system. And it's only 11 minutes, 50 seconds. You can find it on Fox so News. It's called Senator Ben Sass unloads on Congress at Kavanaugh hearing is the name of it. It is one of the best distillations of the American political system and what's wrong with it right now. Um, I think you can find, and it's not very long as well. So give that a listen as well. If you are, if you're interested. Yeah. By the way, Sass is spelled S A S S E. Yes, uh, so yes, yes. you might pronounce it sassy. <laughs> Which he certainly was. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, anyway, I think that is the end for today. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And we will catch you next time on Two Creekers and a Thorn Tree, uh, when it will be a long weekend next weekend. Anyway, enjoy the week, everyone. Cheers. Ciao. Cheers.